0: giant smashing into other giant robots.
1: This is the giant robots smashing into other giant robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel. And with me today is Rob Hirschfeld, founder and CEO of Racken, which develops software to help automate data centers, which they call digital rebar. Rob, welcome to the show.
0: That it is a pleasure to be here. Looking forward to the conversation.
1: Why don't we start with a little bit more information about what Racken and the Digital Rebar platform actually is?
0: I would be happy to. Racken is focused on helping customers automate infrastructure. And for us, it's really important that the customers are doing the automation, right? It's, we're very focused on customer autonomy and self-management. That's why we're a software company, not a services or a ser- as a service platform company. But fundamentally, what Digital Rebar does is it is the platform that helps connect all of the different pieces and tools that people use to manage infrastructure into infrastructure pipelines. So this seamless multi-component automation across all of the different pieces and parts that have to be run to bring up infrastructure. And we we're talking data centers, do a lot of on-premises all the way from the bare metal up, but multi-cloud, you name it, we're doing infrastructure at that level.
1: So how agnostic to sort of the actual bare metal, are you? Uh, We are very agnostic
0: to the bare metal. The way we look at it is Mm -hmm. data centers are heterogeneous, diverse places. And that the thing that sometimes blocks companies from being innovative is when they they decide, oh, we're going to use this one vendor or this one platform or this one, and that keeps them actually from moving forward. So when we Mm -hmm. look at data centers, the heterogeneity and, and sometimes the complexity of that environment is a feature not a bug mm-hmm. from that perspective. And so it's really important to us. It's always been important to us to be multi-vendor, to do things in a vendor neutral way, to accommodate the quirks and the differences between, uh, and it's not just vendors, it's actually user choice, right? A lot of companies have have a multi-vendor problem, I'm air quoting, that is actually a multi-team problem where teams have chosen to make different choices, right? Terraform has no conformance standard <laughs> built into mm-hmm. it. So you might have Everybody in your company using Terraform and Ansible happily, but all differently. And that's that's the problem that we walk into when we walk into a data center challenge. And you, you can't sort of sweep that under the rug. So
1: we embraced it. Mm-hmm. What kind of companies are your primary customers?
0: You know, we're very wide ranging from that. From the top banks use us and deploy us, telcos, mm-hmm. service providers, very large scale. Service providers use us uh, under the covers. Media companies, it really runs the gamut because it's fundamentally for us just about infrastructure. right? And our largest customers are racing to be the first to deploy, that's multi-site, but 20,000 machines that they're managing under under our digital rebar management system.
1: It's easy, I think, depending on where you sit and what your experience is, the cloud providers today just sort of can overshadow the idea that there's even people who still have their own data centers or rent a portion of a data center. Yeah. Today, in today's ecosystem, what are some of the factors that cause someone to do that who isn't an infrastructure provider themselves?
0: Yeah. You know, the funny thing about these cloud stories, and we're talking just the day after Amazon had a day-long outage, is that even the cloud providers don't have you give up operation. You're still responsible for the ops. And for our customers, it's not like they can all just use Lambdas and API Gateway and consider it a day. They're actually doing multi-site distributed operations and they have these estates that are actually, it's more about how do I control a distributed infrastructure as much as it is about repatriating. Now we do do a lot to help people repatriate and they do that because they want more control, Cost savings is a significant component with this. You know, you get into the thousands of machines and that's a big deal. Even at hundreds of machines, you can save a lot of money compared to what you get in cloud. And I think people get confused with it being an or choice. It really is an and choice, right? Our our best customers are incredibly savvy cloud users. They want that dynamic, resilient, you know, very API driven environment. And they're looking to bring that throughout their organization. And so those are the ones that you know, get excited when they see what we've done, because, you know, we spent a lot of time doing infrastructure as code and API driven infrastructure. That's really what they want.
1: Cool. So how long have you been working on Racken? When did you found it?
0: (laughs) Oh my goodness. So Racken is seven years old. Digital rebar is what we consider to be at its fourth generation, but those numbers actually count back before that. Mm -hmm. They go back to 2009. The founding team was actually at Dell together in the OpenStack heyday and even before the OpenStack Heyday. And we were helping, we were trying to ship clouds from the Dell factory. And what we found was that every customer had this bespoke data center we've already talked about. And we couldn't write automation that would work customer to customer to customer. And it was driving us nuts. It, you know, just we were software, we're a software team, not a hardware mm-hmm. team inside of Dell. And the idea that if I fixed something in The delivery were in their data center and couldn't go back to their data center because it was different than what we, you know, the next customer needed and the next customer needed. We knew that we would never have a community. It's very much about this community and reuse pattern. There's an interesting story that I picked up from SREcon, actually, where they were talking about the early days of boilers. This is going back into the last, you know, two centuries ago. But when they first started putting boilers into homes and buildings, There was no pattern, there was no standard, and everybody would, you know, basically hire a plumber or heating, you know, Mm. heating architect was a thing, but you'd build a boiler and everyone was custom and everyone was different and no surprise, they blew up a lot and they caused fires and buildings were incredibly unsafe because of, because they were working on high pressure systems with no pattern and it took regulation and laws and standards. And now nobody even thinks about it. You just take standard parts, you connect them together in standard ways and that creates actually a much more innovative system, right? You wouldn't want every house to be wired uniquely either. And so when we look at state of automation today, we see it as this sort of pre-industrial, pre-standardization process, and that companies are actually harmed and harming themselves because they don't have standards and patterns and practices that they can just roll out and know they work. And so that sort of philosophy started way back in 2009 with the first generation, which was called Crowbar. Some of your audience might even remember this from the OpenStack days. This is the first OpenStack installer built around Chef, and it had all sorts of challenges in it, but it showed us the way. And then we iterated up to where Digital Rebar is today, you know, really fully infrastructure as code, building infrastructure pipelines, and a lot of philosophical pieces we've learned along the, along the way.
1: So you were at Dell working on this thing. How did you decide to, to leave Dell? And start something new.
0: <laughs> Dell helped me with that decision.
1: Okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so the challenge of being a software person inside of Dell, especially at the time, Crowbar was open source, which did make it easier for us to say, hey, we want to part ways but keep the IP. And the funny thing is there's not a scrap of, of Crowbar in Digital Rebar, mm-hmm. except one or two naming conventions that we pulled forward and the, the nod of the name that Rebar is a nod to Crowbar. But what happened was Dell, when it went private, really did actually double down on sort of the hardware and the more enterprise packaged things. They didn't want to invest in DevOps and that conversation that you need to have with your customers on how they operate the infrastructure you sold them. And that made it Dell not a very good place for for me and the Mm -hmm. team. And so we we left. Dell, looked at the opportunity to take, you know, what we'd been building with Crowbar, and then make it into a product. That's been a long journey.
1: Now, did you bootstrap or did you take investment?
0: We took uh, we took a little bit of investment. We we raised mm-hmm. some seed funding. Certainly not what was in hindsight was going to be sufficient for us to do it. But we we thought at the time that we had something that was much more product ready for customers. it was
1: and what was the challenge that that you found what was the surprise there that that it wasn't as ready as you thought
0: so what we've learned in our space specifically and and i there's some things that i think apply to everybody and there's some things that you might be able to throw on the floor and and ignore Mm -hmm. i was a big fan of minimal viable product and it turned out that the mvp strategy was not at all workable with customers in data centers right our product is for people running production data centers. And nobody's going to put in software to run a data center that is MVP. It it has to be resilient. It has to be robust. It has to be simple enough that they can understand it and solve some core problems, which is still sort of an MVP idea, but it can't be oops. (laughs) You can't can't have a a lot of oops moments when you're dealing with enterprise infrastructure automation software. It, It has to work. And importantly, and as a design note, this has been a lesson for us. If it does break, it has to break in very transparent, obvious ways. Right. And I can't emphasize that enough. There's so much that when we build it, we come back and like, was it obvious that it broke? Is it obvious that it broke in a you know, way that you can fix?
1: Right. And it's part of the culture too, to do detailed postmortems with explanations and be as transparent as possible, or at least find the root cause so that you can address it. That's part of the culture of the space too, right?
0: You'd like to hope so.
1: Okay. <laughs> in my experience, that's the culture of the space.
0: You're looking more at a developer experience, but even mm-hmm. from a you know, with a developer, you've got to be in, in a postmortem or something. And, and it's sort of like everybody's you know, pointing to the person to the left and the right just sort of by human nature. You don't walk into that room assuming that it was your fault and, you know, try, you should, <laughs> but, but that's not mm-hmm. how, how it usually is approached. And what we find in the ops space, and I, w- I would tell people to work a- around this pattern, they can, is that if you're the thing doing the automation, you're always the the first cause of the problem. Mm-hmm. Like So we run into situations where we're doing a configuration and we find a vendor bug or a glitch or there's something, and you know, we found it, it's our problem, whether it was really, you know, we were the cause or not.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And that's super hard. You know, I think that people on every side of the, any, any type of of issue needs to look through and figure out what the, the blameless postmortem is a really important piece in in all this. You know, at the end of the day, it's always a human system that made a mistake or had something like that, but it's, it's not as simple as the thing that told you the bad news, the messenger was at fault. Yeah, And there's a system design element to that. That's what we're talking about here, is that when you're exposing errors or when something's not behaving the way you expect, our philosophy is to stop. Mm -hmm. And we've we've had some very contentious arguments with customers who were like, just retry until it fixes itself, or vendors who were like, yeah, if you retry that thing three times, (laughs) then then it'll it'll magically go away. And we're like, that's not good behavior. Fix the problem. It actually took us years to put a retry... You know, retry element into the tasks so that you can say, "Yeah, this does need three retries. Just go do it." Mm -hmm. We resisted for a long time for this reason.
1: So you head out into the market, and you are. Did you get initial customers, or were there was there so much resistance to the to the product that you had that you struggled to get even first customers?
0: We had first customers. Mm -hmm. We had a nice body of code. The problem is actually pretty well understood, even by our customers. And so it, it wasn't hard for them to sort of get a trial going. So we actually had a very profitable customer doing it was in a object storage, public object storage space, and they were, they were installing us. They wanted to, to move us into all their data centers, but for it to work, we ended up having an engineer who basically did consulting and worked with them for the better part of six months and built a whole bunch of stuff, got it working. It was, you know, they could plug in servers and everything would set itself up and they could hit a button and reset all the servers and it would talk to the switches. It was an amazing amount of automation. But, and this happens a lot, the person we'd been working with was sort of an SRE and when they went to turn it over to the admins and the ops team, they said, <laughs> we can't operate. There's too much going on, too complex. And we'd actually recognize, and this is this is a really serious challenge. It's a challenge now that we're, Almost five years into the, the generation that came after that experience. And we recognized there was a problem and that this wasn't going to create that repeatable experience that we were looking for if it took that much. At the same time, we had been building what is now digital rebar uh, in this generation that was a single Golang binary. All the services were bundled into the system. So it listened on different ports and but provide all the services very easy to install, really, really simple. We literally stripped everything back to the basics and, and restarted. And we had this experience where we sat down with a customer who had, I'm going to take a second and tell the story. Cause this is such a yeah. compelling story from a product experience. So we took our first product. We were in a bake off with another bare metal focus provisioning at, at that time. And they were in a lab and they set our stuff up and they turned it on and they provisioned and they set up their, the competitor And they turned it on and provisioned and both products worked. Our product took like 20 minutes to go through the cycle and their product, the competitor took three Mm -hmm. and the customer came back and said, I can't, I can't use this. I like your product better. It has more controls, all this stuff, but it took 20 minutes instead of three. We actually logged into the system, looked at it and we're like, well, that's because it recognized that your BIOS was out of date, Patched your BIOS. Updated the system, checked that it was right, and then rebooted the systems and then <laughs> continued on its way because it recognized your systems were at it automatically. And he said, I didn't want it to do that. Mm. I needed it to boot as quickly as possible. And <laughs> literally, and we were we were in the middle like of a team retreat. So it's like the CTO's literally excusing himself for the tape on the table to talk to the guy, make this stuff, try and make it right. And he's like, Well, we've got this new thing. Why don't you install this, what's now digital rebar? on the system and, and repeat the experiment and he did and digital rebar was fat was even faster than the competitor and it did exactly just installed booted and went, it was done and he came back to the table and you know like like it took 15 minutes to have the whole conversation and make everything work it was that much of a simpler design and he sat down and told the story and i was like in the middle of it i'm just like we're gonna have to pivot and put everything into the new version uh, which is mm-hmm. what we did and it's been you know, we, we just stripped out the complexity and then we've, over the last couple of years now, have built the complexity back into the system to do all those additional, but much more customer driven from that perspective.
1: How did you make sure that as you were changing your focus, putting all of your energy into the new version, that you <laughs> didn't introduce too much risk in that process or didn't take too long?
0: We did take too long and introduce too much risk, and we did run out of money. So, <laughs> okay. All those things happened. This was a very difficult decision. You know, We thought we could get it done much faster. The challenge of the Simpler product was that it, it was too simple to be enough right. in customers' data centers. And so, yeah, we we almost went out of business in the middle of all this cycle. We we had a time where Racken went back down to just the two founders. And at this point, we'd gotten far enough with the product that it that we knew it was the right thing. And we'd also embedded a degree, with the way we do the UX, we have this split, the UX runs on a hosted system, it doesn't have to, but by default it does, and then we have the back end. So we, we were very careful about how we collected metrics, because you, you really need to know who's downloading and using using your products. And we had enough data from that to realize that we had some very committed early users, and early customers, just huge brand names that were were playing around. And so we knew that we'd gotten this mix right, that we were solving a problem in a unique way. But it was going to take time because big mm-hmm. companies don't make decisions quickly. We have a joke. We call it the reorg half-life problem. So the half-life of a reorg in, in any of the, our customers is about nine months. And either you're successful inside of that reorg half-life or you have to be resilient across those reorg half and so initially, it, you know, it was taking more than nine months. We had to be able to sort of get the product in play. And once we mm-hmm. did, we had some customers who came in with very big checks and uh, let us come back and basically build back up. And we've been adding you know, some really nice names into our customer roster. Unfortunately, it's all private. I can't yeah. you know, tell you sort of their industries and their their scale, but I, I, can't, I can't name them. But that engagement helped drive us towards, you know, the feature set and the capabilities and building things up along that process. But it was, it was frustrating. And, you know, some of them, especially with at the time we were open source, were very happy to say, yeah, no, we are super big brand name. We don't pay for software. And like, you know, most profitable, highest valued companies in the world, you don't want to pay for this operational software. And they're like, nope, we don't have to. Uh and uh, that didn't sit very well with us. Very hard. As a starving startup, it wasn't yeah. very that was a hard, hard So at behavior. the
1: time, everything you were doing was open source?
0: So in the digital rebar era, we were trying to do open core. So mm-hmm. digital rebar itself was open. And then we were trying to hold back the BIOS patches, you know, integrate enterprise like single sign-on. So there was a degree of integration pieces that we held back as Rack N and then left the core. Open so you could use Digital Rebar and run it, which we had, you know, we actually had a lot of success with people downloading, installing, and running Digital Rebar. Not as much success in getting them to pay us for that privilege.
1: So, how did you adjust to that reality?
0: We inverted the license after we landed a couple of big banks and we had a, several others who were literally, and, and some mm-hmm. hyperscalers too, who were like, this is really good software. We love it. We're embedding it in our service. But we're not we're not going to pay you. And then they would show up with bugs and complaints and issues and all sorts of stuff. Still. And what happened is we started seeing them replicating the closed pieces. The right. APIs were open. We actually looked at it and listening to our communities, they wanted to see what was in the closed pieces. That was actually operationally important for them to understand how that stuff worked. They never contributed or asked to see anything in the core. They and There's an important end here. And they needed performance improvements in the core that were radically different. So they, you know, the original open source stuff went to maybe 500 machines and then it started to cap out. And we were like, all right, we're going to have to really rewrite the data store mechanisms that go with this. And the team looked at each other and were like, we're not going to open source that. That's really complex and challenging IP. And so we we said, you know, the right model for us is going to be to, to make the core close and then allow our community and users to see all the things that they are actually using to interact with their environment. Mm-hmm. And it, it ends up being a little bit of a filter. There are people who only use open source software, but right. those companies also don't necessarily want to pay. When I was an open source evangelist, this was always a problem, right? You're, you're pounding on the table saying, if you're in, if you're using open source software, you need to understand who to pay for that service, that, that software that you're getting. If you're not paying for it. there's you know that software's going to go away. You know in a lot of cases we're a walking example of that. And you know it's funny more more of the code base is open today than it was then, <laughs> but the challenge is that it's really an open ecosystem now because you can't run none of that software is particularly useful without the core to run it and glue everything together.
1: Was that a difficult decision to make? Was it controversial?
0: Incredibly difficult. It was something I spent a lot of time agonizing about. My CTO is much clearer eyed on this. From his perspective, mm-hmm. you know, he's he and the other engineers are blood, sweat, and tears putting this in. And it was very frustrating for them to see it, you know, running people's production data centers who told us, and this is I think the 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 key, who would just say to us, you know, we're not gonna pay money for that. And so, you know, for them, it was it was very clear-eyed. It's it's their work, their sweat equity, very gut feeling for that. For me, you know, I watched communities with open source uh, roots. You know, the Kubernetes community. I was in open source. I was, was OpenStack. I was on the board for that. And there is definitely a lift that you get from having free software and and not having the strings. And I also like the idea that from a support perspective, you know, if you're using open source software, you could conceivably not care if the vendor that you chose went away, you you could find another life for it. But years have gone by, and and that's not actually a truism that when you are using open source software, if you're getting it from a vendor, you're not necessarily protected from that vendor making decisions for you. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. CentOS is a great you know the whole we're about to hit the CentOS deadlines, which is to streams, and you can't get other versions, and we now have three versions of CentOS, at least three versions of CentOS with mm-hmm. Rocky and Alma. Uh, and into streams those are very challenging decisions for people running enterprise data centers it's not that simple and nobody in our communities is running charity data centers there's no goodwill charity you know i'm, I'm running a data center out of out of the goodness of my heart <laughs> they're all production systems enterprise you know they're they're doing real production work and and that's a commercial engagement it's not a feel good thing
1: so what did you do in your decision making process what pushed you or what did you come to terms with in order to to make that change
0: i had to admit i was wrong <laughs> um, <laughs> i had to you know think back on statements i'd made and enthusiasm that i'd had and give up some really hard beliefs being a ceo or a founder is is the same process so i wish i could say this was the only time i mm-hmm. had to question, you know, hard made assumptions or, you know, some core beliefs and what what I thought. I found you know, I've, I've had to get really good at questioning when am I projecting this is the way I want the world to be, therefore it will be. That's a that's a right. CEO skill set, a founder skill set. And when that projection is you know having you on thin ice. And so you, you constantly have to take that balance. And this was this was a one of those ones where I'm like, all right, let's do it. And then, mm-hmm. you know, I, I still wake up some mornings and, and look at, you know, people who are, you know, open source only and see how much press they get or how easy it is for them to get mentions and things like that. And I'm like, oh, God, that's that'd be great. It feels like it's much harder for us because we're commercial to get the amplification, right? There are conferences that, you know, will amplify open source Terraform, great example, it gets tons of amplification for being a single single vendor project. It's very right. tightly controlled by HashiCorp. They get but nobody's afraid to to go talk about Terraform and mention Terraform and do all this stuff. That amazing use of open source by that company. Yeah. You know, it's, but they could turn it and twist it and they could change it. a not a guarantee by any stretch of the imagination.
1: Right. Well, one of the things that I've come to terms with, and maybe this is a very positive way of looking at it instead of that you were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Is to realize that, like, well, you weren't necessarily wrong. It got you to where you were at that point, but maybe in order to go to the next level, you need to do something different. And that's how I come to terms with some things where I was <laughs> need to change my thinking.
0: I like that. It's good sometimes. I, I like you can look back and be like, yeah, that wasn't the right thing, and just own it. Mm-hmm. Right. But yeah, it does help you to know the path. One of the reasons why I love talking about it with you like this is, you know. It's not just oh, Rob was wrong, <laughs> we're actually walking the path through that decision. And, and, you know, it's easy to imagine us sitting in, you know, we were in a tiny little shared office listening to calls where I'll tell you that I'll tell you, this is a story to make it incredibly concrete because this it's exactly how this happened. But <laughs> so mm-hmm. we were, we were on a call, you know, everybody was in the room and we were talking to a major bank saying, we love your software. We're like, great we're looking forward to working with all this stuff. And they're like, yeah, we, we need you to show us how you built this plugin because we want to write our own version of it. And they're <laughs> like, well, if you, if you did that, you wouldn't need to buy our software. And they're like, that's right. We're not going to exactly. buy it Exactly. And, and we're like, well, we won't show you how to use it. Then we won't show you how to do that. And they're like, well, okay, we'll figure it out ourselves. And so, you know, and I'm, I'm the cheerful, you know, sunny, positive, you know, so I'm sort of hand, managing the call and I'm not just yelling at them. My C- CTO was sitting next to me, like literally tearing his hair. I mean, this was literally mm-hmm. a tearing his hair out moment. And, you know, we hung up the call and we went on a walk around the neighborhood and he was just like, what more do you need to hear right, for you to understand? And so it's, it is, it's, you know, it's, it's moments like that, but, but instead of being like, no, you're wrong, we got to do it this way. I was ready to say, okay, what do you think we can do? How do we think we can do it? And then, then he left me with a big pile of PR messaging to explain what we're doing, you know, conversations like this two years ago, when we made this, this change on the three, I felt like I was being handed a, you know, a really hard challenge. As -hmm. it turns out, it hasn't been as big a deal. The market has changed about how they perceive open source. And we definitely for enterprise customers, they're like, all right, how do we deal with the licensing for this stuff? And how do we, you know, and we're like, you just buy it from us. Right. They're like, that's it. And I'm like, yes. And you guarantee everything? Yeah. They're like, oh, well, that's pretty straightforward. I don't have to worry about, you know, we could go way down an open source rabbit hole and the consulting pieces and who owns the IP. And I used to deal with all that stuff. Now it's very (laughs) straightforward. Like you want to buy and use the software to run your data center? Yes, I do. Great.
1: Well, I think this is generally applicable, you know, even beyond your specific product, but to products in general is like when you're not, Talking to people who are good customers or who are even going to be your customers, who are going to pay for what you want, you can spend a lot of time and energy trying to please them, but you're you're not going to be successful because they're not they're not going to be your customers no matter what you do.
0: And that that ends up being a bit of a filter with the open source pieces. Is that there are there are customers who are dyed in the wool open source, and and this used to be more true. Actually, the market's moved a lot. We ended up just not talking to them anymore, but they, they do, they, they want a lot. They definitely would ask, you know, ask for features or things and additions and help things like that. And it's hard to say no, especially as a startup founder, you want to say yes a lot. Mm-hmm. We try to not say yes to things that we don't. And this, this puts us at a disadvantage. I feel like from a marketing perspective, we, we don't do something. We tend to say we don't do it or we could do it, but it would take whatever, I wish more people in the tech space were as disciplined about this does work, this doesn't work, this is a feature, this is something we're working on. It's not how tech marketing typically works. Sadly, that's why we focus on self-trials so people can, can use the product.
1: I wanted to tell you all about something I've been working on quietly for the past year or so, and that's agency U. Agency U is a membership based program where I work one-on-one with a small group of agency founders and leaders toward their business goals. We do one-on-one coaching sessions and also monthly group meetings. We start with goal setting, advice, and problem solving based on my experiences over the last 18 years of running ThoughtBot. As we progress as a group, we all get to know each other more, and many of the agency you members are now working on client projects together and even referring work to each other. Whether you're struggling to grow an agency, taking it to the next level and having growing pains, or a solo founder who just needs someone to talk to, in my 18 years of leading and growing ThoughtBot, I've seen and learned from a lot of different situations, and I'd be happy to work with you. Learn more and sign up today at ThoughtBot.com slash agency U. That's A-G-E-N-C-Y, the letter U. So you have the core, and then you have the ecosystem. And you also mentioned earlier that that it is a sort of actual software package that people are buying and installing in their data center. But then you have the UI, which is in the cloud, and the what's in the data center is, is re- reporting up to that.
0: Well, this is where I'm going to get very technical. <laughs> so hang on for a second. We actually use a cross-domain approach. So... The way this works, and what our UX is written in React, and everything's, Mm -hmm. boy, there's like three or four things I have to say all all at once, so forgive me as I circle, everything we do at Digital Rebar is API first, really API only. So the GoLang service with an API, which is amazing, It's, it's the right way to do software. So for our UX, it is a React application that can talk to that, what we call an endpoint, a Digital Rebar endpoint. And so the UX is designed to talk directly to the digital rebar endpoint, and all of the information that it gets comes from that digital rebar endpoint. Oh, okay. We do not have to relay it. Like, you have to be inside that network to get access to that endpoint, and the UX just talks to it.
1: Okay, and so the UX is just being served from your centralized servers, but you're just delivering the React for the JavaScript app, and then it's talking to the local APIs. Right.
0: And so we do, we do like use that browser as a bridge. And so when you want to download new content packs, so digital rebar is a platform, so you, d- you have to download content and automation mm-hmm. and pieces into it. The browser is actually your bridge to do that. So the browser can connect to our catalog, pull down our catalog, and then send things into that browser. So it's super handy for that. But yeah, it's fundamentally, it's, it's a all behind your firewall software, except and this is where people get confused because you're downloading it from rackn.io That download or the, the URL on the browser looks like it's mm-hmm. a rackn URL, even though all the traffic is network local.
1: Now, do your customers tend to stay up to date? Are they updating to the latest version right away all the time? <laughs> no, of course not. I figured that was the answer.
0: Yeah, no, and, and we maintain, you know, patches on old versions and things like that. You know, I wish they were a little faster. I'm, it, I'm not always sad that they're, you know, I'm actually very glad when we don't, we do a release like we did yesterday. And in that release, I don't expect any of our production customers to, you know, go patch everything. So like in a SaaS, you might actually have to deal with the fact that you've got, when I mean, we're back to our heterogeneity story, and this is why it's important that we don't do this. If we were to push that, then every customer—if we didn't handle every situation for every customer exactly right—there would be chaos, and it would right. all come back to our team. The way we do it means that you know we don't we don't have to deal with that. Our customers are in control of when they upgrade and when they migrate, except in the UX case.
1: Yeah. So how how do you manage that if someone goes to the the UI and their local thing is an old version? How how are you detecting that and doing things differently?
0: Yes. So one of the decisions we made that I'm really happy with is we embedded um, feature flags into the API. Mm -hmm. When you log in, it will pull back. You know, we know what the versions are, but versions are really problematic as a way to determine what's in software, not what's not in software. So instead we get an array back that has uh, feature flags as we add features into the core. And we've been doing this for years and it's an amazingly productive process. And so that what the UX does is for, as we add new things into the UX, it will look for those feature flags. And if the feature flag isn't there, it will show you a message that says, this is not, this feature is not available for your endpoint Mm -hmm. or show you the thing appropriate without that. And so, yeah, the UX has gone through years of this process. And so there are literally just places where the UX changes behavior based on the you know, what you've installed for your system. And remember our customers, it's multi-site. So our customers will have, do have multiple versions of digital rebar installed across there. So this yeah. behavior is really important also for them to be able to do it. And it goes back to like the launch darkly. You know, I was I was talking to Edith back in the early days, launch darkly and, and feature flags. And, and I got really excited about that. And that's why we embedded it into yeah. the product. Everybody should do it. It's amazing. One of the
1: previous episodes a few ago was with... Actually, the ThoughtBot CTO, Joe Ferris, and we're on a project together where we basically <laughs> it's a different way of working, but especially when you need it, I was so so much of what I had done previously was versioned APIs. Mm. Maybe that works at a certain scale, but you get to a certain scale of software and way of working and wanting to do continuous deployment and continually update features and all that stuff. And it's a really good way of working when instead you are communicating on the level of feature availability.
0: And from an ops person's perspective, and this was true, like with OpenStack, we were dealing, they they were adding feature flags, like down at the metadata for the, it was, it was incredible. They went sort of deep, deep into the versioned API. Hellscape is the only way I can <laughs> describe it because we don't, we don't do that. But the thing that that does not help you with is a lot of times the changes that you're looking at from an API perspective are behavior changes, not API changes. Like our API is, is over years now has been added. Right. Mm-hmm. And as long as you're, you're okay with new objects showing up, new fields showing up in an object, you could go back to four-year-old software, talk to our API, and it would still work just fine. You know, so all your integrations are going to be good, but the behavior might change. Mm-hmm. And that, that's what people don't, you know, they're like, oh, I can make my API version and everything's good. But the behavior that you're putting behind the scenes might be different. You need a way to express that even more than the APIs, in my opinion.
1: I do think you really see that when you're, if you're just building a monolithic web app, it's, it's harder to see. But once you, once you separate your UI from your backend, and where I first hit this was with mobile applications, the problem becomes mm-hmm. more obvious to you as a developer, I think, yes, because you have some people out there who are actually running different versions of your UI too. So your backend is the same for everybody, but your <laughs> UI is different, and so you need a backend that can respond to different clients. And yes. a better way to do that, rather than versioning your APIs, is, is to have the clients tell you what they are capable of while they're making mm. the requests and to respond differently. It's much more of a flexible way.
0: We do track what UX. We have customers who don't want to use that. They don't even want us changing the UX on Mm. normal enterprise. And so they will run the nice thing about a react app is you can just run it. The digital rebar can host its UX. And that's perfectly reasonable. We have customers who do that, but it requires, you know, adds more operational complexity. And then they, if they don't patch the UX, they can fall behind or not get features. So we see that it's you're, you're describing a real, you know, the more information you're exchanging between the clients and the servers, the better for you to to track what's really going on.
1: And I think overall, once you you know, it can get a little in my experience, especially people who haven't worked that way joining the team, it can take a little bit for them to get comfortable with that approach and how mm. sort of the flexibility you need to be building into your system. But that once people are comfortable with it and a team is comfortable, it really starts to hum. In my experience, a lot of sort of what we've advocated for in terms of the way software should be built and deployed and that kind of thing is, is it actually makes it so that you can live that even easier and you can really be agile because you can roll things out in a very agile way.
0: Yeah. So are you thinking like an actual rolling deployment where the software is Mm -hmm. deployed software is multiple versions coming through?
1: Yep, and you can also, you know, have different users seeing different things at different times, as well. You can say, you know, we're gonna roll this. We're gonna be doing continual deployment and have code continually deployed, but that doesn't mean that it's part of the release yet. That it's available to users to use yet.
0: Yeah, that ability to split and feature flag is is a huge deal.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I'm trying to figure out is, does this apply to every project, even like the small, like this just changes the way you should build software? Or is there a time in the a product to start introducing that thing?
0: I'm a big fan of doing it first and fast.
1: Mm-hmm. There's decisions
0: that we made early that have proven out really well. Feature flags is one of them, like we started right away, knowing that this would be a you know an important thing for us to do and and same thing with like sort of tracking dependencies and being able to say you know i need actually it's helpful cuz you can write uh, automation that says i need this feature in the product this flag in the product it's not just a version thing and that makes the automation a little bit more portable and easier easier to maintain the other thing we did that i that i really like is all of our objects have documentation embedded in them so as I write a parameter or ask or really anything in the system, everything has a documentation field. And so I can write the documentation for that component right there. And then we modified our build scripts so that they will pull in all of that documentation and create an aggregated view. And so the ability to do just in time documentation is very, very high. And so that's been a I'm a huge fan of that. Because then then the burden of like, oh, I need to go back and write up a whole bunch of documentation is really lessened when you can be like, okay, for this parameter, I can explain its behavior and I can tell you what it does, know that it's going to show up as part of a documentation set that, mm-hmm. you know, explains it. That's been something I've been a, a big fan of in what we build. And not everybody, you know, is as much a fan and you can see people writing stuff without particularly crisp documentation behind it. But at least, you know, we can go back and add that documentation or lessons learned or things like that. And it's been hugely helpful to have a, a place to do that. From a design perspective, one other thing I would say that we did that, and you can you can imagine the conversation, I have a UX usability focus, you know, I'm also in the product. So for me, it's how does it demo? How does it show? What's that first first taste, first experience like? And so to me, having icons and colors in the UX and the experience is really important there's a lot of semantic meaning that people get just looking down a list of, of icons and seeing that there's there's different colors and different different shapes but from the cto's perspective that's you know window dressing who cares mm-hmm. it doesn't have functional purpose and we're both right you know there's a lot of times when you know to me both people can be right so we added that as a meta field into all of our objects and so we have the functional part of the definition of the api and then we have these meta objects that you can add in or meta definitions that you can add in behind the scenes to drive, you know, icons and colors, but sometimes like UX rendering hints and, and things like that, that from an API perspective, you're like, don't care. Not really an API thing, but <laughs> from a, does this, you know, do I show that, you know, this is sensitive information. Do I turn it into a password field or do I need, should this have a clipboard so I can, you know, clipboard icon it, or should I render it in this type of viewer or a plain text viewer? And all that stuff we have a place for.
1: And so it's actually being delivered by the API that's saying that. Correct. That's cool.
0: It's been very helpful for the, you know, you can imagine the type of stuff we have. And then it's easy to influence UX behaviors without asking for a UI change.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, are these GraphQL APIs?
0: No, we looked at doing that that's probably a whole nother, that's uh, yeah, it's a, a whole another episode on, on, on yeah for that. <laughs> but we could do that but we made some decisions that it wasn't going to provide a lot of lift for us in, in navigation at the moment mm-hmm.
1: it's funny there's stuff that we think is
0: a really cool idea but we've learned not to jump on them without having really specific customer but use yeah. cases or validations
1: well like you said you've got to, you've got to say no you've got to you know make decisions about what is important and what isn't important now and what you'll get to later and that requires discipline
0: this is you know maybe a, a way to bring it full circle because right if you go back to the, the stories of you know every customer having a unique data center every does this heterogeneity and multi vendor pieces that are really important the unicycle we have to ride for this is we want our customers to have standard operating processes call standard infrastructure pipelines for this and use those and follow that process. Because we know if they do, then they'll keep improving as we improve the pipelines. And they're all unique. So there has to be a way in those infrastructure pipelines do extensions that allow somebody to say, I, yeah, I need to make this call here in the middle of this pipeline. And we, we have ways to do that that address those needs. The challenge becomes providing enough opinionated, like, this is how you should do things. And and it's okay if it's you have to extend it or change it a little bit or tweak it. Without it, just becoming a open ended tool where people show up and they're like, yeah, oh yeah, I get all your, I get how to build something. We have people do this, but they run out of gas in the long journey. They they end up writing bespoke workflows. They write their own pipelines. They do their own integrations. And for them, it's very hard to support them. It's very hard to upgrade them. It's very hard for them to survive the reorg. You know, nine month reorg windows. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there's a balance between go do whatever you want, which you have to enable and do it our way because these processes are going to let your teams collaborate, let you reuse software. And we've actually over time been erring more and more on the side of, yeah, you really need to do it, you know, the way we want you to do, you know, reinforce the infrastructure as code processes. And this is the key, right? I mean, you're coming from a development mindset. You want your tooling to reinforce good behavior right? Yeah. CICD, you know, infrastructures, code, all these things that you, you need those to be easier to do <laughs> than right writing it yourself. And that's sort of over time, we've been progressing more and more towards the, let's make it easier to do it within the opinionated way that we have and less easy to do it within the wild west pattern.
1: Cool. Well, I think with there we'll we'll start to wrap up. So, uh, if people want to find out more, where are some places that they could do that or get in touch with you? The
0: simplest thing is, of course, rackn.com is the website. You know, we encourage people to just, if this is interesting, download and try the software cloud. They can you know, if they have a cloud account, it's super super easy to play with it. Those are all all things rackn are through that. I am very active on Twitter under the handle zicle z e h i c l e and. I am happy to have conversations you know, around these topics and data center and operations and even the future of, of cloud and edge computing. So uh, please look me up. I'm excited to have conversations like that.
1: Awesome. And you can subscribe to the show and find notes and transcripts for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at CPytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Mandy Moore. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by Thoughtbot. Thoughtbot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.